0: Please turn your Bibles to the Epistle of Jude, the Epistle of Jude, and we shall be reading the whole Epistle. So the Epistle of Jude, let's read from God's inspired, holy, inerrant and infallible Word. Let's read from God's Word. Jude the servant of Jesus Christ which was once delivered unto the saints. But there are certain men crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, and godly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, Afterward destroyed them that believed not. And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he had reserved in everlasting chains under darkness, unto the judgment of the great day. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in the like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise, also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the Archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, does not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuked thee. But these speak evil of those things which they know not, For what they know, naturally, as brute beasts, in those things they corrupt themselves. Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, and run greedily after the error of Balaam, for reward and perish in the gainsaying of Kor. These are spots in your feasts of charity, when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear, clouds they are without water, carried about of winds, Trees, whose fruit withereth, without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. Raging waves of the sea, forming out of their own shame. Wandering stars, to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness for ever. And Enoch also, the servant from Adam, prophesied of these saints, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints, to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against them. These are murmurs, complainers, walking after their own lust and their mouths speak great swelling words having men's persons in administration because of advantage. But beloved, Remember ye the words which were spoken before of the Apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. How that they told you there should be mockers in the last time, who should walk after their own ungodly lust. These be they who separate themselves, sensual, having not the Spirit. But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And of some, have compassion, making a difference, and others, serve, save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, a saviour, be glory and majesty Dominion and power, but now and ever. Amen. So we read God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Let's spend some time seeking the face of the Lord. Let's pray. Please um, turn your Bibles again to the text that we've just read earlier um, the book of Jude, Epistle of Jude. The Epistle of Jude. Now today we continue our look into the book of Jude, which we began last week. Contrary to what I said last week, actually, we'll be starting today from verse 11. Last week I mentioned that we'll be doing the first 15 verses, and they will be coming from verse 16 today, but um, when I reviewed the um, preaching last week, I decided that I needed to go back to verse 11. So we'll be... Starting, we'll be covering some grounds again between verses 11 to 15. So, we'll be starting from 11 this evening. But before we do that, it'd be nice just to have a quick recap of what we covered last week. We commenced by looking at the identity of the human author of Jude, how he describes himself as the brother of James. We examined Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, as the source of the view that Jude is the half brother of Christ. We examined what transpired from this view and continued our way through the book. We then examined the people who Jude was writing this epistle to. We concluded that we were not given a specific church as Jude's audience or congregation, but it was to believers in his day. We examined this book is written to us as well because it's the word of God. The word of God applies to Christians in the day of Jude as much as it applies to us today. So it's the word of God. And as I mentioned last week, I believe that every single word of the Bible is inspired by God without any exception. We then looked at the purpose for which the book was written. We concluded from the text that the initial purpose of the book was to encourage the Christian of his day in the common salvation. However, he felt it necessary to write unto them. To un, earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. So that was what the rest of the book continued. In. We examined what it means to contend for the faith, delivering the answer from verse four, where we read for sorry deriving the answer from verse four, where we read, for there are certain men croing unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation? ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into blasphemousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. We then determine that these are damnable heretics who have disguised themselves as true teachers of God's word, when in fact what they teach is contrary to God's word. We look at how God has ordained these things and yet is not the author of the sin associated with it. We look at a few examples from scripture. For example, how Micaiah informed Ahab that God had put a Lion Spirit in the mouth of the false prophets to deceive Ahab. Now the purpose for God is the punishment of Ahab. The punishment or purpose of the Lion Spirit obviously is to cause harm and destruction to Ahab. So we have one act, the deception of Ahab, and we have two different purposes. A righteous and holy purpose by God, and a wicked and evil purpose by the Lion Spirit. So we know that God's integrity remains intact. And yet those who commit the sin, they are liable to be punished one day for their sins. We look at how Christ's sheep can never be deceived, because they hear his voice and only follow him. Hence, those who are deceived by these false teachers are deceived because they are not Christ's sheep. We briefly examine what it means by these false teachers, denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. We concluded that such people are those who deny doctrines, such as the deity of Christ, people who deny the eternal punishment of the wicked. And then we also examined a professed reformed preacher who claims not to know what happens to people who die in their sins. I, as last week I will refrain from mentioning that person's name. But he claims to be reformed and as a matter of fact he confesses to the Westminster Confession And I actually quoted a section from that Westminster Confession which is for Sita claims to to believe in, which in no unclear words show that eternal damnation is a lot for those who die in their sins without Christ. We concluded by looking into the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah and relating the wickedness to today's view of the wicked rebellion against God where people rebelliously decide that they are one of a different gender to the one God created for us. As. as a matter of fact, a lovely preacher called Albert Martin calls it the height of rebellion against God. When God determines that you be, He creates you as a male, and you decide against what God has done to change yourself into a female, well, God still recognizes you as male, whatever you call yourself, and it doesn't really matter what you do. God still recognizes just as those who commit adultery, run away with another man's wife or another man's husband. It doesn't mean that God legitimizes that wicked relationship, He still views you as married to your previous spouse and He will judge you for that if you don't repent. So we looked at this and then we looked at the children of Israel, how they provoked God to anger even though God patiently endured their wickedness, their unbelief for several centuries. We looked at how they provoked God to anger in the, you know, in the wilderness, and then it goes on into the Promised Land, and then it goes on into the um, monarchy as well, and to the and to kingdom, the divided kingdom. We looked at different ways in which how God eventually dealt with both kingdoms. And so today, as I mentioned, we'll be starting from verse eleven. So let's begin today's. Expository. And what I'm going to be doing is I'm just going to be doing an expository of verses 11 all the way to verse 25. So verse 11. War unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, and one gives greedily after the error of Balaam, for a world and perished and again saying, of course. <coughs> Jude pronounces a woe unto them. Woe is derived from the Greek word, O-H-I-L-U. Oh, I. And the literal meaning is, Oh, no. So it's a very negative connotation when someone says war. And the understanding becomes evident in this comparison of these wicked people to Cain. And as greedily running after the error of Balaam. Now, as we all know, Cain, he murdered his brother Abel out of envy. He destroyed Abel, murdered him. Did you see them to go into an open place where probably their parents won't be able to see them and then he struck Abel dead. But did that solve Cain's apparent problems? No, because God demanded Cain of Cain, Abel, that where is your brother? Where is that brother? Cain may be sarcastic and answering God that is not his brother's keeper, but that's not the issue. He knows what God was asking. God was asking, You murdered your brother. And God carried on speaking to Cain, that his blood cries out. There are many debates actually, as to why God did not strike Cain dead at that point in time. Well, the obvious answer is because God is sovereign. He decides how to meet at his punishment. But there might be some other reasons as well. Number one, God has not instituted human government at that time. Human government was instituted after the flood. And that was when God determined that the death penalty will be for every murder that occurs and that is in Genesis chapter 9 verse 6 so there are some but ultimately God knows why he didn't strike Cain dead at that time but it doesn't mean that those who murder today will anyway get any better even though the state refuses to put them to death as God commands the case of Balam is equally wicked he, invited, he was invited by Balak the king of the Moabites to curse the children of Israel many of you may have known that narrative very well. As a matter of fact a pastor preached on it when he was going through the book of Numbers and as preparation for this sermon I had to listen briefly to that sermon because there were one or two things I needed to be absolutely sure of before I speak the pulpit. And God specifically instructed Balaam not to commit the wicked act of cursing his people. Now, we have to understand that God sometimes works in ways that we don't um, Conceive, you know, God could have prevented Balaam from cursing the people of Israel. Could, could have. Is there issue with me? Okay. okay. All right. Is, okay. Is it okay now? Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay, let me just go back to Let me go back to verse 11 So verse 11 War unto them for they have gone in the way of Cain And ran greedily after the error of Balaam For reward and perish in Gensain Of course So we see that Jude pronounces a war unto them War is derived from the Greek word o-i, The literal meaning oh no The understanding becomes evident In his comparison of these wicked people to Cain And the greedy running of the era of Abel Now we know that Cain murdered Abel his brother out of envy now there is quite a few historic um, commentators that try to figure out exactly why God rejected Cain's sacrifice but I believe that God rejected Cain's sacrifice mainly because it did not come in the form that God expected but there are also other things as well God may not necessarily reveal the reason why he did it, but there's one thing that resulted from that rejection. The heart of Cain was exposed barely for all to see. Cain did not realize that when you come to God with your sacrifice, you come in humility. You come knowing that that sacrifice in itself can never please God. You come through the mediator of Christ. That's how you bring your sacrifice to God. But the rejection of his sacrifice brought all that to the fore. And so we see that Cain had a wicked heart. But there are also many other things that could be seen from that point of view as well. What you need to look at sometimes is you look at subsequent sacrifices. What did God command subsequent to Cain? What occurred prior? Okay, many people may say, oh, we don't know what occurred prior. But if you read in Genesis chapter 3, we read that God made... Um, a coat of human skin for Adam and Eve. Now we were not told whether an animal was killed. We were not told in that narrative. But the inference is, before you can get a coat of skin, you must have killed an animal. That's the inference. But when we look at subsequent, especially when God was giving instructions to the children of Israel, He didn't in any way request that they bring the fruits or whatever. What God requested was an animal to be killed. When Noah, when he came out of the ark as well, he sacrificed an animal. And when you think of the preparations for the ark anyway, God instructed Noah to bring in seven animals of the clean animals. Obviously, because there is going to be some required for sacrifice. So when you look at all the surrounding things, and you see what Cain gave to God, then you can understand why God rejected it. So we move on. Then there is the case of Balaam, who is no better than Cain. Balaam was hired as a professional curser, if I may say, to curse the children of Israel. And as I was mentioned earlier, God could have found other means of stopping Balaam. For one, he could have put him to death. There are other ways he could have done. He could have made sure that the curse does not work on the children of Israel. But God, for his own reason, decided that this is the method in which he was going to stop Balaam from doing it. God directly spoke to Balaam that he shouldn't do it. And we see that Balaam was a very, very wicked man. Let me just give you a brief narrative of what occurred. God specifically instructed Balaam not to commit such a wicked act. Balaam initially pretends to refuse, even to the extent that he seems to refuse Balak's initial offer of reward. Then God came to Balaam at night, commanding Balaam to go with and see Balak. But Balaam should obey God's command not to curse the children of Israel. As Balaam went to see the prince of Moab, he met the angel of the Lord on the way. I believe that this angel of the Lord that Balaam met is a pre incarnate appearance of Christ. Now, my belief is based on the fact that the text reads in Numbers chapter 22. And I read from Numbers chapter 22, verse 23. It reads, And the ass saw the angel, note the angel of the Lord. Now, the Lord is in all um, capitals, standing in the way. And he saw it drawn in his hand. And the ass turned aside out of the way and went into the field. And Balaam smote the ass to turn her into the way. Now in verse 25 we read, And when the ass saw the angel of the Lord. Then in verse 27 the text reads, And when the ass saw the angel of the Lord. Finally in verse 28 the text reads, And the Lord opened opened the mouth of the ass. Usually when we see a scriptural reference to an angel, such as a messenger, the scripture says, An angel of the Lord. But when we see Scripture say the angel of the Lord, in all cases it usually refers to the pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are many examples in the Old Testament. Uh, It's not my intention to go through them. But there is one in in Judges actually when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon. And our pastor, he preached from that whilst he was going through the book of Judges with us. So God was able to stop Balaam from... um, Cursing his people. But what did Balaam do? Did Balaam repent? No, he didn't. What Balaam did could be found in Numbers chapter 31. And if you don't mind, let's just quickly turn to that. Numbers 31. The reason why I'm turning to this, I just want us to all see it for ourselves. Numbers 31. Numbers 31, I read from verses 15 and 16. Behold, these caused the children of Israel through the council of Balaam to commit trespass against the Lord in the matter of Pippor. And there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. Now therefore, kill every male among the little ones, and kill every woman that had known man by lying with him. So we see there, Balaam, he caused the children of Israel to commit boredom with the women of um, the Moabites we see the trespass against the Lord in the matter of Moab where there was a plague in, among the congregation in verses 12 and 13 he provides specific descriptions of these false teachers so sorry we're back at um, we're back at Jude now verses 12 to 13 Jude provides specific descriptions of these false teachers he says there are spots in your feast of charity when they feast with you Feeding themselves without fear, clouds they are without water, carried about of winds, trees whose fruit withereth without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, forming out of their own shame, wandering stars, to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. So these are not very complimentary words, they are very, very condemning words. They are described these people who are false teachers are described as parasites. Now, what is a parasite? A parasite is an organism, usually an insect, that feeds off its host. But not only does it feed off its host, it actually produces poison to the host. So, maybe, let me give you an example like mosquito. Now, if you've been to a tropical region, you know what I'm talking about, but mosquitoes, they're not very pleasant at all. And when they bite you, They don't just bite you to suck your blood, they bite you and leave something behind, such as many people die of the effects of say malaria, for example. And this is what these false teachers are. They're parasites, they have no value, completely worthless people. They add no value to the people they preach. Their destruction is rest assured. Now why do I say this? Now these are very, very serious statements I'm making. But when you think of it, False teachers, they inject damnable heresies into their hearers. They inject false teaching, things that distort the revealed word of God. That's what they inject. I mean, I've heard false teachers, for example, say that it's not God's will for you to be poor. I've heard false teachers say that if you're really a Christian, you should be driving the latest car. You should be living in the mansion house. You should be having the best money. In fact, there is one such for teacher whose ministry is entitled, quote-unquote, ministry is your best life now. So these are wicked people. They're people that you should run away from. As a matter of fact, I call them spiritual criminals because that's what they are. They're wicked people. You see them on these so-called Christian television seeking money from their goats. I call it goats because it's not sheep that send money to these people. Sheep will definitely know that these are false. Maybe a naive sheep may be caught, maybe for a few moments, actually, for for, for a few months or so. But it won't be be a matter of time before this sheep deserves that. No, this is not scripture. Verses 14 and 15. And Enoch also, the servant from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment upon all. And to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, apart from here, there are three other places where Enoch's name is mentioned, is mentioned in other parts of the Bible. Now, the first place is in Genesis chapter 5. Then he was mentioned in Luke chapter 3 as part of the genealogy of Christ, and then in Hebrews chapter 11. Now, in Genesis chapter we were informed that God took him when he was 365 years old. Now, as you may understand, in those days, people lived longer than they do now. It's part of the wicked generation we have today, where people will not believe the word of God. Because if you examine the Guinness Book of Records, I was hopefully hoping to find Methuselah as a man who has lived the longest ever. But unfortunately, because it's written by people who don't believe the Bible, you won't find the name of Methuselah there. But that's just side. So in Genesis chapter 5 we hear that he, God took him when he was 365 years old. In Hebrews 11 verse 5 we're informed that by faith Enoch did not see death but was translated into the presence of the Lord. Before his translation he had a testimony that he pleased God. Now this implies that Enoch was an elect saint, he was an elect disciple of Christ whilst he was on this earth. Now we were not given exactly much information but he prophesies meaning that he warned people of his day about God's impending judgment through the flood that's what we can glean from that so we see that for a fact Noah was not the only person who was warning people in his day Enoch at least was one of those people warning that God's judgment is coming and that is relevant to today because as Christians we need to continue to warn unbelievers that God's judgment is coming it might not come in your lifetime, but it doesn't mean that it's not coming. God's judgment, when it comes, it will come unleashed without any form of mercy. As a matter of fact, if you read Isaiah, God says that he will splatter the blood of people who he's punishing and he will stain his garment. I mean, this is very serious stuff that we're talking about here. And God's judgment will be righteous be just in executing judgment against all his enemies now for those who die in their sins before they held in a place of temporary punishment the same place where the rich man in luke chapter 16 currently resides that's where those places are and that place is kind of like you've been kept in a very good place compared to the punishment that god will finally unleash on the last day it's you know i honestly believe That when God casts people into the eternal flames of hell. They will gladly swap where they are now. Where as the rich man said. Give me just a drop of water to cool my tongue. For I am tormented by these flames. This is what the rich man said. But when God unleashes his final wrath against his enemies. They will gladly swap where the rich man is now. For where God will cast them on that day. And so as Christians we need to warn people. That God's judgment is coming. And it's coming, really. It doesn't mean... Many people think that by laughing these things off, it will go away. Many people think that by ridiculing the things of God, they will have the last say. And there is one thing we need to understand. There may be men like Richard Dawkins. Very clever men. They've got all these PhDs. They've got all these deans and all these high degrees. But because you're an expert... In biology because you're an expert in physics doesn't make you an expert in the Word of God and God is still casting people into hell even as I speak this evening so we need to warn people that God's judgment is coming and it doesn't really matter what the press says it doesn't really matter what CNN says what BBC says it doesn't really matter whatever um, sceptics says God's judgment is coming and when it comes it's going to be as real as what people say today. is going to be as real as me preaching in front of you today. God's judgment is going to be absolutely real. People will experience it physically. And those are some of the things that we need to warn people about. Let's carry on. Verse 16. These are murmurers, complainers. Walking after their own loss. And their mouths speak great swelling words. Having men's persons in admiration. Because of advantage. Now this speaks of skeptics and cynics. Also known as atheists today. The Bible clearly declares that there is no atheist in the world. That's what the Bible says and that's what I believe. There is no atheist in the world. Psalm 19 declares that the heavens declare the glory of God. So all a man needs to do is just open his eyes. See the sun that sends out its light. See the clouds that become rain. See the blue skies. See many documentations of what sciences have recorded of creation of God and give glory to God. It's not rocket science at all. A little child should know that this world was created. And let me just spend a few moments here. Many people, if I walk with a can of Coke in my hand and tell people that, Oh, this Coke came from nowhere. It just evolved and became Coke. Many people will think, Oh, this guy is not stable maybe he needs some um, they call it mental health awareness or whatever maybe he needs some help he's not mentally stable now yet people dare say that human beings very complex creatures the earth the only planet that has life in it so different from the other planets people are willing to say that that just came into existence that just evolved And yet, when you ask them for the missing link, sincere question, logical question, rather than tell you that they can't find it, they begin to attack you for your beliefs. Obviously, because you've put some hold into their theory. So these are cynics, people who hate God. And that's what they're doing. When they say they hate this, they're just using it as a mask, as an affront, as a front to to disclose their hatred of God. The sin nature in us does not want anything to do with God. And God has said in his word, because he's anticipated this, God is infinite in wisdom. He knows all things, past, present, and future. So he knew that atheists would exist. And let me read to you from Romans chapter 1, what God has to say to atheists. Romans chapter 1 verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, Against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Who hold the truth in unrighteousness. They hold the truth. So they know the truth. But they hold it in unrighteousness. They suppress it. Some versions say suppress it. They try to remove the truth. Because there is an unrighteousness in them. That doesn't want the truth to be exposed. Because that which may be known of God. Is manifest in them. For God has shielded unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that, when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God. Neither were they thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorrupted God into an image made like to corruptible men, and to birds and four-footed beasts, Creepy creeping things. So we see the extent to which sinful men will go to deny the existence of God. Now God is not bothered or concerned about the denial of him, to be honest. Why? Because his heart, he already has a place prepared for these people. The flames of hell is what it's called. He already has that place. So he's not really concerned. He's not in any way bothered. His glory is not in any way tarnished by these skeptics. And these people they speak so many wicked things. self aggrandizement and worship of self, which is the society today. It dominates the society. You see this thing called selfie. You know, I remembered coming home from I think it was from Northern Ireland, and the passenger next to me, she must have taken almost a hundred pictures of herself. It's the age that we live in today. People want to look good, people want to see themselves as excellent, as as this Glorious thing that needs to be worshipped. And that's behind the, the, the denial of the existence of God. The atheists, they know what they're doing. They're not doing it because they don't know about God. They're doing it willfully. Willful rejection of God. Verses 17 to 19. But beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. How that they told you there should be mockers in the last time. Who should walk after them on God they lost. These be they who separate themselves, sensual, having not the spirit. Now, in those verses, the apostle alludes to the apostles who have instructed these believers in the past. Then he makes a special, specific reference to Apostle Peter's warning of end-time skeptics. If you look at this text, and the text I'm going to share from you, from Apostle Peter, there's so much similarities between both of them. So much similarity and if you don't mind, for comparison, let's just quickly turn to Second Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, if you don't mind. And we'll be reading from verses 2 to verse 4. Verses 2. 2, Peter chapter 3, verse 2. That you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord and Saviour, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, "Where is the promise of his coming? For since the Father fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation." As you can see, there are striking similarities in both narratives. Both describe skeptics using slightly different terminology. Peter calls them scoffers; Jude, them, Jude calls them mockers. Both describe the course of their cynicism as walking after their own lust. The specific form of lust described by Peter is a willful, cynical attitude towards the truthfulness of Scripture. Peter continues in his description, The argument used by these cynics and skeptics is that where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So, in Peter's day, probably the mockers or scoffers They still have some element of belief in creation. Because you can see the word there says, since the beginning of creation. Not like the scholars of today who deny creation altogether. These people, they complain that there have been so many years since the first coming of Christ. That many years have passed. So where is this second coming that you are talking about? Now, we need to understand that the world has not been short of mockers and scoffers since Christ ascended into heaven. The Bible has many things to say about those who mock or scoff at the word of God. Before we turn to some of these scriptures, let us examine the language used by Jude to describe these wicked people. Jude says that these mockers are are they who would walk after them on godly lost. We're back at Jude now. Verse 19, These be they who separate themselves, sensual, having not the spirit. So these people know the implications of their mockery of God's word. They mock God's word because of their ungodly lust, which is manifested through their pride, wickedness, and not possessing the spirit. These people are reprobates. They're worthless men and women. They are sons of Belial. God describes these people in many other ways. I'll just give you a few of them. In Psalm 14, verse 1, it says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works there is none that doeth good proverbs chapter twenty one verse twenty four proud and haughty scornor is his name who dealeth in proud wrath isaiah twenty eight verse twenty two now therefore be ye not mockers, lest your hands be made strong sorry lest your bonds be made strong. so the implication there is that mockers are under bondage. When they become mockers, their bonds is not reduced at all; it is made stronger. For I have heard from the Lord God of hosts a consumption, even determined upon the whole heart. Jeremiah fifteen verse seventeen. I sat not in the assembly of the mockers, nor rejoice. I sat alone because of my hand, of because of thy hand, for thou hast filled me with indignation. So that's Jeremiah speaking there, filled with indignation about the audacity. Of these wicked people mocking the word of God. So we see from these few scriptures. That those who mock and scoff the word of God. Are not worth the attention many give them. It's quite unfortunate actually. That many Christians seek to go and reason with them. Seek to go and debate them. I honestly believe it's a waste of time. They're not worth that attention. Time spent in debating and giving these people attention. Could be better spent preaching the gospel to unbelievers. Because these people, they're worthless, they hate God, and it's just best to leave them in the hatred of God. God has already determined how he would deal with these wicked people. Now, Proverbs paint a very vivid picture of what would be done to them. In Proverbs chapter 18, verses 6-7, to seven, it reads, A fool's lips enter into contention, and his mouth calleth for strokes. A fool's mouth is his destruction, and his lips are the snare of his soul. Very, very good ending there, is it? In Proverbs 19, verse 29, we read, Judgments are prepared for scorners and stripes for the back of fools. In verse 20 to 23, so, so we see from Proverbs, God has already ordained what he's going to do to these people. We don't need to be concerned about them. Yes, it will upset us. It will distress us as Christians. But people can have the audacity to do this to the word of God. But we know that God is in full control. Is Nothing is out of God's control at all. These people, we need to look at it from this point of view. They still depend upon God for the air that they breathe. And sometimes, God has a strange way of shutting these people up. Now, many of you, I don't know if any of you know about a man called Christopher Hitchin. He died about 11 years ago. But what he first had was... He died of throat cancer. So he literally ceased to be able to speak, to be able to use his voice. The amazing thing is, Christopher Hitchin, from what I understood, was one of the most foul-mounted atheists that have ever lived. Very, very foul-mounted man. But God closed his mouth even before he died. We have to understand the God we serve. He is the infinitely powerful God. There is nothing that is beyond God's capability the only thing God cannot do is he cannot sin that's the only thing he cannot do aside from that God is infinitely powerful verses 20 to 23 we're back in Jude but ye beloved building up yourselves on your most holy faith praying in the Holy Ghost keep yourselves in the love of God looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life and of some have compassion making a difference and others safe with fear pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. Now Jude is now coming to the end of the epistle. He exhorts them to build themselves up in their most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. Now these words apply to us today, as it did our brothers and sisters in Jude's day. How do we build up ourselves in the most holy faith? We do so by constantly exercising the means of graces that Christ has given to us. These include daily devotion, comprised of studying in the Bible, and time of prayer. Now, as Christians, we know that we will never pray enough. But we can start from somewhere. I mean, three years into my Christian life, I didn't have a continued prayer life. I think after three years when I became a Christian, by God's grace, I began my daily devotion. And by God's grace, I've been consistent ever since. I mean, that was about, what, about 13, 14 years ago. So, God is able to, to, to enable us to, to have a very, very devoted life, we should use the means of grace. But there are other means of grace that we need to do. We need to attend fellowship, at least twice every Lord's Day, and as many times during the week as practically possible. And When I mean practically possible here, I'm not saying that coming to fellowship is an optional extra during the week, I'm not saying that at all. But as I understand, some people have very demanding jobs, that sometimes it may be impossible for them to attend midweek service. But my recommendation is attend it as often as you can. Make it your top priority. Know that if there's anything that's gonna keep you away from fellowship on midweek, let it be the only thing which is your job, which you know is quite understandable. But even that, find a way in which that won't keep you from, from fellowship, if it's possible. Only let it be the last resort that your job will keep you away from fellowship during the week. But the Lord's Day, there are two services in the morning and in the evening. Now God commands that we give him every single minute of that day. So coming to the fellowship for two times, max maybe about four hours at most, is not too much. It's just a way of giving God his day. As Christians, we always pray in the Holy Ghost. So I believe that when it says praying in the Holy Ghost, it's just for emphasis. It's not something extra. I'm saying this, I'm making this emphasis because our charismatic friends tend to believe that there's a time when you pray in the Holy Ghost and there's a time you don't pray in the Holy Ghost. But I believe as Christians, we always pray in the Holy Ghost. So those who don't pray in the Holy Ghost, they don't do so because they're not saved. They're praying to a God that doesn't exist. The other thing is that we need to constantly repent of our sins. It's a very important thing. Keep short accounts with God. I used to think that repentance was a one thing before you became a Christian. But then I got to realize a few years after becoming a Christian that repentance is a daily occurrence. We continually repent of our sins. We continually plead to the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness. We also carry on um, verses 22 and 23. And some of some have compassion making a difference. And others save with fear pulling them out of the fire. hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. What, how do we have compassion? How do we make a difference? How do we save others with fear? The answer to these questions is contained in the media context. Pulling them out of the fire, hitting even the garment spotted by the flesh. We pull them out of the fire by preaching Christ to them. Again, we are not to take these words literally. Ultimately, it is God who saves men from their sins. But God has ordained by like the preaching of the gospel The outreach to unbelievers is the means that we use to bring people to salvation. And so we need to use those means that God has ordained. When we see unbelievers, we tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ. There are many ways in which we can do it, this in, in our land today. The weather is a very good way and God has given us the weather, which is a very good thing that we talk about. And if you strike up a conversation with someone about the weather, you can twist it from physical to spiritual. Did you realize that it's God that gave us that weather? And if it's someone complaining, you realize that our weather is actually one of the best in the world because we export food. Without our weather, we won't be able to do that. There are many countries where the rain doesn't fall for months, if not years, but that's not our case. And then from there, you can begin to talk to them about what matters most, their soul. And see if they're open to spiritual things. If you realize that they're not open, You can always terminate that conversation. You don't need to take it any further. Because ultimately it is God that makes people open to spiritual things. Verse 24. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. Jude Jude then ends the epistle with a wonderful doxology. Now, for those who don't know, doxology is another word for glory, for um, a prayer, in a sense. If you notice, when pastor finishes, he just has a quick word of prayer at the end. So that's what the apostle is doing. He gives glory to Christ, who alone is able to keep us from falling. It's the fact that without Christ, as Christians, we won't be able to stand, not even for five seconds. It's Christ that keeps us from falling. And I honestly believe that one of the evidences of a genuine Christian is being able to stand for Christ where it's difficult to do so. There are many times where Christ may call us to stand up for him in an hostile environment. It might be within your family. Maybe you're the only one who's a Christian in your family. You might need to stand up for Christ in that place. It might be in the place of work. Maybe the boss is asking you to, to lie to a client. And you tell the boss, no, I can't lie because my faith forbids me from doing it. It might be in different circumstances. Maybe since you become a Christian, you've got friends who like to go to the pub, who want to go and watch football on the Lord's Day. You might need to take a stand there and say, well, I can't go to the pub because that's not the place where I belong. There are different ways, and the mere fact that you stand for Christ is evidence that you're saved. Now, I'm not saying that you stand perfectly for Christ. I'm not saying that there will be some times where you won't fall short. We're all um, vessels of jar and clay, but you know if that defines your walk with Christ, if that's what people know you as, then it's evidence that you're saved. Not only is Christ able to keep us from falling, but He will also present His faultless before the presence of the glory of God with exceeding joy. Now, Christ has attained on our behalf all we need for this to be done. He has obeyed God perfectly, and it's also died on the cross for for our sins so God is no longer angry with his people which is us he's no longer enraged with us because Christ has taken the anger of God on our behalf he's obeyed God perfectly on our behalf that's why we know that we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ let me just read this scripture before before we look at the final verse if you can please let's quickly turn to Galatians Galatians chapter 2. <clears throat> Galatians chapter 2, verse 21. It reads this. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is died in vain. What is he saying there? He's saying that the righteousness we possess is the righteousness of Christ. Christ not only came to die for our sins, but he came to obey God perfectly on our behalf. And that's the righteousness we possess. It's the perfect righteousness that God demands for those who want to enter heaven. And God cannot compromise on that. So when we see what Christ has done for us, we can rejoice in the fact that Christ represents us perfect, faultless, many times we may not be able to conceive it in our minds because it's mind blowing that me who I can see my faults even now will one day be presented perfect in front of God well the Bible says that day will come and it will happen so I believe it because the Bible says it and there's nothing God cannot do that's what God has done for us and our final verse Jude, he runs up the epistle with his wonderful glorious words to the only wise God our saviour The glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. And that's the desire of every Christian. We desire to see Christ glorified forever. You see, that's one of the reasons why we're not compromised on Christ's standard. That's why we will not present any other way apart from Christ to enter heaven. Because we want to see Christ glorified. And God is glorified in two ways. He's glorified through the forgiveness of sin, or is glorified through the punishment of sin that's why when he casts people into hell he won't be doing it reluctantly he'll be doing it joyfully because he's glory he being glorified in punishing sin but also when we go to heaven we won't be going reluctantly either because God commands us to come and when he commands us he means it God is not stingy at all and the other thing I want to, to make clear this evening also is that God is no tyrant at all. What God demands from us, He deserves. He deserves every single thing He demands for us, from us. We have disobeyed, but God Himself has paid the punishment that we deserve on behalf of us. So we know that God is pleasant, He's happy to have us reside with Him. May the Lord bless His words to our souls. We shall conclude our evening service this evening by singing from our hymn book in 902.